John chapter 10, beginning at verse 22, it says, And it was at Jerusalem, the feast of dedication, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you believe not because you are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. And I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them to me, is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And they understood so clearly what he's saying. It says in the next verse, they took up stones again to stone him, making himself equal with God. They felt it was blasphemy. <clears throat> so here, Christ coming up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication. This is the last scene of his public ministry in John's Gospel. We will follow him in his personal ministry after this. But this is his last of the public ministry, verses 22 to 39 here, on the Feast of Dedication. He had gone somewhere after Tabernacles, which was about two and a half months before this. So between verse 21 and 22, there's two or two and a half months. It says he left again in verse 40. So we know he had gone. He hadn't stayed there. And he comes back up for this feast. This feast of dedication. Um, <clears throat> three months away from the crucifixion. It's hard for us to imagine. Maybe we will never know. Even we will grow in those things. What is in his heart? What's on his mind? At this point, the Feast of Dedication was not a mosaic feast. It was not in the law. It was not a mandatory feast to attend in Jerusalem. But it was in remembrance of the temple that had been desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes. In 167 B.C., he was one of Alexander's four generals, and he came into the city. <clears throat> he sacrificed a pig on the altar. He put, set up an altar to Zeus. He killed any Jew that he found with a copy of the Old Testament. He fried some of the priests alive on these huge skillets. He forced swine flesh down some of their throats. He was the Antichrist of the Old Testament, the abomination of desolation. A, a picture of that is from his life. We know that 
with all the future tenses, it's still yet to come and it can't be far in front of us at this point in time. He finally fell down and was eaten of worms, which has been his lot ever since. Um, but one of the priests, Matthias' son, Judas Maccabeus, stands up and starts a rebellion and is able to take back the temple and drive those forces out. So three years after, in 164, the 14th of December, he's able to get the city back and he takes the temple and he wants to cleanse the temple and rededicate the temple. And he does that. We call it Hanukkah. Hanukkah means to consecrate or to dedicate. It is also called the Feast of Lights. Because once Judas Maccabeus and his forces took the temple back and they knew they had to cleanse it and rededicate it to light the lamps in the temple, they needed the oil that was consecrated. It was made by the priest. They only had enough oil for one day. So they prayed and they lit the lamps, knowing they only had one day supply, because it would take eight days to make the oil and consecrate it as prescribed in the Old Testament. And they lit the lamps, and through prayer, those lamps burned for the next eight days with only one day supply. So it's called the Feast of Lights as well. that's why when you go to Israel, if you see a menorah with nine, one in the middle and four on each side, that's not the menorah that's the symbol of Israel, which is one in the middle and three on each side, which is seven. But if you see the one with nine branches, that's the memorial of the Feast of Lights because it burned for the first day, then eight other days after that. Now, look, this is the most recent of Israel's feast at this point in time, a hundred and some years old. Some of these people, particularly some of the older ones, had grandparents. Most of them had all had great-grandparents that had lived through these days that told them of these things. They, they, some of them had heard of word of mouth. And it becomes a, a feast dear to the nation of Israel. Still celebrated today. You know, Hanukkah every year around Christmas. Hanukkah is there as well. And it was celebrated in the temple, but it was celebrated in the homes as well. They all burned their lamps in their homes, memorializing what had taken place. So the Feast of Lights, Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication. And it tells us Jesus is there in Jerusalem, and it says it's winter. And it says to us in verse 23, it says, And Jesus walked... That word there is the emphasis in the verse. Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. So we have an interesting picture here. Jesus walked. It's imperfect. He got there. He began to walk and he continued walking. He's, He's meandering through the temple at this point in time. And we're told it was winter. That's when this feast took place. And it tells us that he's in Solomon's portico or Solomon's porch, which most scholars agree is on the east side of the temple precincts. 
And some believe it's tradition, it's hard to corroborate, that there were still some minor structures there from Solomon's temple, and that Herod the Great, when he rebuilt the temple, used some of them as a template for the other things that he built. I've been to Israel enough times that on the outside of that eastern wall, you can see some stones that are different from the ones that uh, had been, been put in there by the Turks and by the, the, the Romans. They're shaped different, they're a different color, and they know those are original Solomonic Solomon stones from that temple. So he's walking there. In some ways, in his own heart and his own mind, it's winter. It's cold. The harvest is through. That was tabernacles. It was gathered in. He had come to his own people. I believe there's a brokenheartedness about this scene. We're told this in Jeremiah. It tells us this in chapter 8, verse 20. It says, the harvest is past. The summer is ended, and we are not saved. The harvest is past. The summer is ended, and we are not saved. And Jesus is milling around in Solomon's portico in the winter. It's cold. It would keep the wind from blowing on him at that point in time. It's rainy season. It was sealed. It had a roof. He's there. I've been in Jerusalem in the beginning of December and saw six inches of snow in Jerusalem. So he's there after that. That was unusual. That's the exception, not the rule. But it's cold. He probably has a larger cape over his robe, walking there, milling around. But I believe there's another reason for that. We're told in the book of Acts, it says there that this lame man that is healed, if you remember, by Peter and John, and then he's jumping, he's following them. All the people are coming together in amazement. And it says, as the lame man, which was healed, held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. In Acts chapter 5, it says, and by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And of course, as well, we wonder in the end of chapter 2, where it says, they continued daily with one accord in the temple, the breaking of bread from house to house, did they eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. This seems to be the place where the church gathered. 3,000 were saved on the day of Pentecost. They couldn't meet in somebody's living room. So these portico of Solomon, Solomon's porch, this expanse on the east side, seems to be the place where the church was gathering. And here's Jesus. It's winter. He's done everything he could to share with the Jews, the Jew first, then the Gentile, and they've turned from him. There are some who have believed, but the majority have turned away. And what's in his heart as he was walking there? 
you know, thinking cross, three months from now, the cross, I'll be nailed to a cross in this city. But 40 days past that, 50 days, the Holy Spirit will fall, Peter will preach, and 3,000 souls will be gathered here. The lame man will be healed, and people will run to this place. The apostles will be doing signs and wonders. They'll all be gathering here. In 50 days, I'm sorry, 50 days after the crucifixion, you're talking about five to six months, is he thinking about, does he see us? Does he see the church? Does he think, you know, for the glory that was set before him, you know, enduring, despising the shame, enduring the cross, despising the shame, but it was for the glory, the church. Is he walking there thinking, yeah, I've got to go. Israel's rejected me. Crucifixion is ahead of me, but thousands, thousands will be here where I'm walking. And it's in the context of that, he says to the Jews, you're, you're not my sheep, that's why you don't believe. But my sheep, he's going to tell this, they hear me. I know them. They follow me. I give to them eternal life. Nobody can snatch them out of my hand. He's not walking to Solomon's portico thinking, man, I hope after they get saved, they don't get backslide or get stolen or something. You know, he's not thinking that. He's thinking this is where it'll happen. And I will preserve them. I will give them eternal life. No one will snatch them out of my hands. They will never perish. And they'll be in my hand and we all will be in the Father's hand. Think, think of what he's going through. And he says it to him now in the middle of this scene. <clears throat> in verse 24 it says, Then came the Jews round about him, <clears throat> literally says they encircled him. And they said unto him, again, the imperfect tense, they started to say and continued to say, how long dost thou make us doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, there's a mockery involved in that. Um, how long do you make us, you know, live in this question mark? The King James says, if thou be the Christ, the Greek, it's called a first class condition, the if there. So in our, in American English, you have if, and if means it might, it might not. But in the Greek, you had three class conditions. You had if, and it is, which we would say since. They had if, like our if in the middle, it might be, set class condition. They had if, and it probably is not the third class condition. So this is first class condition. They said, since you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. They're mocking him. Oh, come on, man. You know, they get around them now. They, 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 you know, they feel like they have him. Tell us, you know, tell us, how long are you going to hold us in, uh, in, in suspense here? Since you're the Christ, see, Satan said that to him. Since you're the son of God, turn these stones in the bread. He didn't say if. He knew. He said since, which then actually would, he was hoping would push Jesus further. They say since 
you're the Messiah. You're the big Mahath. Hey, since you're the Messiah, why don't you tell us plainly? Of course, then he says, been there, done that. Look at the next verse. Jesus said to them, I told you. The idea is, I've already told you, and you believed not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but you believe not because... You are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. So he says, I already told you. And the idea is, and you are not believing. There's a present tense there. I told you, you're not believing. And he says, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness. And against those tenses are the works that I am doing in my Father's name, they are bearing witness of me. He says this is an ongoing thing. He's in, he, his miraculous ministry is no he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He, he says these works that I'm doing in my Father's name, they are giving testimony to me. Isaiah 35 said when the Messiah comes, he'll open the eyes of the blind. He'll unstop the ears of the deaf and so forth. Heal the lame. Jesus said, you want me to tell you whether I'm Messiah? The works that I'm doing are bearing witness of me. Nicodemus had come to him in chapter 3, first two verses. Rabbi, we know you're sent from God. Nobody could do the miracles you're doing unless he was sent from God. So there were those in the, the Jewish community, in their leadership, that did take note of those miracles. John the Baptist, and probably the lowest point of his ministry, sitting in Marcaris in the prison, sends his disciples to Jesus and says, Are you the one that's to come, or should we look for another? Jesus says, Go tell them what you see. The eyes of the blind are open. Years of the deaf are unstopped, lepers are cleansed, the dead are raised, and blessed is he whosoever is not offended in me. Jesus said, the signs that I am doing are bearing. Imagine someone today, we have, you know, all kinds of people want to be leaders today. All kinds of people got all kinds of stuff to say. But imagine if there was someone around, walked into children's hospital and went from room to room and emptied the hospital. Imagine if there was someone around and they were just throwing people at his feet and everybody who came in contact with him was healed. It tells us Peter's mother-in-law, Peter's mother-in-law, Peter's house there in Matthew, that they were throwing people down as fast as they're throwing them down. They're being healed. And they're, they're, there's like 50,000 people at a time following him. He says, look, there is a testimony. You want me to tell you? You don't have to open your ears. We already tried that. Open your eyes. The works that I'm doing in my Father's name, I'm always doing, are constantly bearing witness of me. Here's the problem. But you believe not. The reason? Because you are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. So look, we get to this passage, and it's one of the clearest passages in the New Testament on eternal security, if that's a clear issue. 
to anybody. Uh, but this is one of the strongest pictures here. And it's saying to us there are those who are secure and there are those who are not secure. The ones who are secure are secure because they're his sheep. The ones that are not secure are not secure because they are not his sheep. The ones who believe don't believe and then become his sheep. The ones who believe believe because they are his sheep. And the reason these people don't believe is because they are not his sheep. It doesn't say they can't. In fact, there's an emphatic structure that says, you, as for you, you don't believe. And that structure puts all of the responsibility on them. It doesn't say you can't. He says you won't. You don't. It doesn't say you cannot. You don't. You, as for yourself, you, you don't believe. And the reason is, it's not that you haven't heard. It's not that I haven't done miracles. It's not that there isn't a testimony. The reason you don't is because you're not of my sheep. He says, I told you that. Now, verse 27, you and I show up here. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My father, which gave them to me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of the father's hand. So he, interesting now, he's, if you read through 27, I mean 20, 29, listen, it's so personal. I give, he says, these are my sheep, verse 27, my sheep, my voice, I know, they know me. My father, this is personal all the way through. And there's these present tenses, which, which is ongoing. He's saying this. He says, they are hearing constantly my voice. I constantly am knowing them. They constantly are following me. And I constantly am giving to them eternal life. It isn't like we got to wait till heaven till that happens. Jesus had said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believeth in him would not perish, but have presently everlasting life. So the, the, all of these are simultaneous. They're hearing. I know them. They're following. I'm giving. That's our experience. It's not religion. It's relationship. In our relationship, you and I personally, are you hearing? Yeah, okay, good. Three of us. The rest, the rest of us ain't going to be there, but three of us are going to be there. We're hearing. We don't want to hear men. <clears throat> we don't want to hear the news. We want to hear him. We're hearing him, Right? He knows us and is knowing us experientially. And we are following him. Not religion, not a man. We are following him. And he is giving to us eternal life. 
We're hearing his voice. This is interesting. He's not saying they hear my word. Certainly we do. But it's a different word there. The sheep hear his voice. That relationship between sheep and shepherd was intimate. And the sheep know the voice of the shepherd. If, you know, if the shepherd every day says, all right, guys, let's march. The sheep know that. If a different person goes there and says, okay, guys, let's march, they're freaked out because it ain't his voice. Same words. But the point is there's an intonation. There's something personal about it. And to you and I, there's something personal about when he speaks to us. Certainly for you and I, primarily, that's the word. What he does speak to us is the word. But we, you have in this innate Ability from the Holy Spirit to know when he's speaking to us. Put that down. You shouldn't be doing that. Come be with me. Get up early tomorrow morning. I want to meet with you. We know when he's speaking to us. And it says he does that in such a way because he knows us. He's knowing us, each one of us. I, you know, I have four adult children. When you have two children, you think opposite only has two directions. When you have your third, you realize, wait a minute, opposite has at least three directions. Four, opposite has at least four directions. It's just because we're all so different. It is genius. We're hearing his voice. He's knowing us in the process of our hearing. And we are following him. How incredible. And in our following, he is giving. Presently today, he's giving to us eternal life. Listen, it doesn't say we're working for it. It doesn't say we can earn it. It doesn't say we'll ever deserve it. It doesn't say we're worthy of it. it doesn't say we win it by winning a battle. It doesn't say we get it by behaving properly. What it says is he is giving to us as a gift. If it wasn't that, it wouldn't be a gift. And what he's giving is eternal life. Now, if you could lose that, it would be contradictory. He's giving to us eternal life. And there's two pairs there. The pairs are... They hear, they follow, I know, I give. You know, from the human perspective, you know, we're his sheep because we believed, right? We said, I got saved. Hey, when did you get saved? I got saved in 1972, whenever. You know, everybody's got a testimony this is when I got saved. That's the human perspective. I'm his sheep now because I got saved then. The divine perspective is, you believe because you are my sheep. You're not my sheep because you believed. The reason you did believe is because you were already, you were already my sheep. And he knew us. And that's a divine mystery. How do you, uh, how do you bring together God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? It's a mystery. People want to mess with it. 
Jesus, when he's saying this, isn't thinking, gee, I'm going to mess with the Calvinists and Armenians here. I better be careful what I'm saying. You know, there's none of that in the Bible. Paul talks about predestination and being called and all those things. And he says, what shall we say to these things? His answer is simple. If God be for us, who can be against us? No one will pluck them from my hand, he says. No one. So both of those things are true. Human responsibility, God's sovereignty, and what God has joined together, let no man put asunder, right? He says, and I am giving to them eternal life, and they will not perish. Look at that there in verse 28. It says, they will never perish, um, never is the double negative in the language. It's like this. They shall never, ever, no way, ever perish. Ain't going to happen, can't happen. If I gave them eternal life, they could perish. Then it wouldn't be eternal life. I'm giving it to them day by day and continually. And because of that, they shall never, ever, no way Perish And perish is an eternal word. It talks about suffering. It's not annihilationism. It's just it's suffering on forever and ever. So there are the perishing, and there are those that are not perishing. There are those who have a stamp on them perishable, and they have an expiration date. And then there are those of us without an expiration date, Right? They shall never, ever perish in darkness and in hell forever and ever. That's never, ever, no way going to happen to them. It's not going to happen. He says, neither shall any. Now, King James man is in italics. That's because the text should read, neither shall any pluck them out of my hand. No, on top of all that, nobody's, because they're mine, because they hear, they know my voice, I know them, they follow me, and because of that, I give and am constantly giving them eternal life. And because I'm giving them eternal life, they shall never, ever perish, no way, and you ain't got to worry about that because no one's, no, nothing is ever going to pluck them out of my hands. They are unpluckable. Sounds like a good t-shirt, doesn't it? Or a good bumper sticker. Get, get a hoodie with that on the back, unpluckable. <clears throat> and then when you walk around the mall, people say, what in the world does that mean? You get to tell them whether they're pluckable or non-pluckable. Right? Unsnatchable. And nothing is ever going to be able to do that. Romans, again, says this to us. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? God that justifieth? Of course not. Who is he that condemneth? Christ that died, yea, rather is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us? Of course not. He's, he's not going to condemn us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, 
or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or the sword. As it is written, for thy sake, we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature, that's y'all, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing's going to pluck them out of my hand. Paul comes to firm grips with that because he was slaughtered the church. He had made people blaspheme the name of Jesus at the point of a sword. And Paul understood he was secure. Now, some people, you know, they're afraid to teach this because they think, well, if you teach that, people are going to go out then and do crazy stuff. Well, those who are not his may do that. But for you and I, if we go out and try to do something wrong, we're miserable. If you're backslidden today, we pray you're miserable. We pray you get ulcers. We pray you get insomnia. We pray nothing goes your way until you crawl back because we love you. Right? It says they'll never perish. It doesn't say they'll never backslide. They'll never struggle. They'll never mess up. They'll never compromise. They'll never fail. It doesn't say that. It says they shall never, ever in any way perish. Again, he's not walking in Solomon's portico thinking, you know, the Jews wouldn't listen. The Gentiles are going to listen, but I hope they don't mess up because I'm end up with nobody at the end. You think what's on his heart as he's, as he's saying this and he's laying these things out. Our security is not based, he says, on how tightly we hold on to Christ. Our security is solely based on how tightly his hand holds on to us. That's what it's saying here. Nobody can pluck them out of my hand. You know, there's chapters and books written on 28 and 29. You know, you're reading, you need a bottle of Excedrin to read them all. Just, But he says, nobody's going to pluck them out of my hand. That's our security. And he said, that security is given to us. You can't work for it. You don't discern it. You'll never be worthy of it. And then he says, because some people are going to say then, well, what if you choose to jump out of his hand? Well, you got another problem. Verse 29 says, my father, which gave them to me, he is greater than all. And again, man is in italics and none is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. OK, you think, you know, because Satan comes along and condemns us. Oh, I think you might be slipping out of the hand of Christ. Really? Problem is, there's another hand around the whole thing. And that's the hand of almighty God who gave Christ to have you, your life is a gift from the Father to the Son. They have the same program, the same burden. They have the same love for us. They have the same plan of salvation. In fact, in this next verse, he says, I and the Father, not I and my Father, I and the Father are one. And the Jews take the stones, they're going to stone him because he's claiming deity. He says, I and the Father are one. The word one there is neuter. 
So what he's saying is not I and the Father are one person, because they're not. I and the Father are one essence. It's not denying the Trinity. I and the Father, one purpose, one burden, one mind, one heart, one love for the lost, one plan of salvation. It doesn't say we are one. And sadly, you know, I think here in the midst of this Jewish crowd listening to him, they were in habit, in the habit of saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. The Shema every day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, our God, Elohim, which is plural. Hear, O Israel, our Lord, our Lord, God, plural, is one Lord. One Echad. If it had said Yahid, it would have been something different. He's one Lord. Echad is like I might say my wife and I are one. Or I and the staff, we're one on this. The idea is it's a compound plurality. Whereas if he had used the word Yahid, it's a, it's a single oneness. It's it's a it's absolute oneness. That's not these Jews every day said, Hero Israel, and God gave it to them. Jehovah, our gods, is one Echad. Is a compound unity. He's our Lord. Every day it was in that. And I think Jesus' heart is broken. He's looking at them here. He's gone through all of these things. This is going to be the end of his public ministry when we get down to verse 39. It's the Feast of Dedication. He had said to them, destroy this temple. And I'll raise it again in three days. The true temple was about to be dedicated and consecrated. And you think of him walk, walking there. You know, it just there are ages, you know, from... From Adam to Noah, to the patriarchs, to Moses, through the kings of Israel and the prophets. And all of that now, here he is, walking in Solomon's portico. And it was winter. It was winter. I think that speaks of more than the season. The harvest has passed. Summer is gone. And we are not saved. You have to ask yourself a question today. Am I one of his or am I not? If your heart is saying, this is true, he's there. I, I want to know him. That means that's happening because you are one of his sheep. If you're saying, oh man, just Let's get out of here. Knock it off, will you, so we can go to friendlies or something. You're doing that because you are not one of his sheep. Well, that's not fair. Well, then come and prove you are. I'm not going to do that. Well, don't and prove you're not. Right? Right? 
It doesn't seem fair. Look, what's not fair is, first of all, me being a pastor, that's not fair to anybody. Somebody this week called me reverend. I said, that proves you don't know anything about me. What's not fair is you and I deserve to suffer and go to hell. And what's not fair is our Savior took our punishment and satisfied the wrath of Almighty God. And all of our sin was laid upon him. That's what's not fair. Don't say it ain't fair because you got to get saved or if you don't. No, that has nothing to do with fairness. That is just using your mind and your heart, the capabilities that God gave to you. Well, I believe in this, I believe that. That's not, that's not any proof of genius. That's just the evidence of a feeble mind. Where's your security? UN? Look, where's your security? The two most powerful leaders in the world right now are talking about Armageddon. You know, at least wait till the Eagles game is over. And they're gonna, you know, they're, they're, they're going to blow up the whole world. These are the most powerful people in the world. We know more about Armageddon than they will. And what, they're, what, they're, what they're, they might start blowing us all up is just a bad, you know, rendition of what the real Armageddon is going to be at the end of the age. Is your security in your finances? <laughs> Money talks, huh? It says Goodbye. Is your security in your health? That is wearing out. You can paint it up, get the hair fixed, get all those new teeth, you can do all that. You just look great when you die. And, and look, Christians, when they die, they die temporarily. Their body dies. To be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord, the old bag of bones goes in the grave, and that's temporary. Those who refuse him, see, we will never, ever perish. We go on living, and then this is going to be raised incorruptible. We get the new model. Those who will not accept Christ perish forever and forever, 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 and forever. So we're going to sing a last song. I know you're thinking, oh, a song doesn't seem very much in keeping with that. Look, it is. We're going to worship the Lord. And please, if you're here today... And you don't know Christ. Forget about Calvary Chapel. Forget about pastors. This is not about religion. It's about relationship. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. Not church, not religion. They follow me. I give freely, undeservedly to them eternal life. And if they receive that from me, they shall never, ever in any way perish. And no one will ever pluck them from my hand. Let's stand. Let's pray. Lord, I know you've overheard. And Lord, just think those that may be here that have never come. Lord, I think growing up in a religious family and how it did nothing and how empty I was, Lord Jesus, and how different it was when you revealed yourself to me, Lord. And Lord, we believe that amongst those maybe that are unsaved here today, as you say, some of them, in fact, are your sheep, Lord. And we pray they're hearing your voice. And we pray they'll come to the altar today, Lord, to give their lives to you. 
We trust you to do that, Lord Jesus. We look to you, we pray in your name. Amen.